You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told January 9th at Northern Light United Church. The theme was Fork in the Road with live music by the Summit String Quartet. Our first speaker tonight is Greg Capito. Greg is a 45-year resident of Alaska. He came to Juneau in 1975. He liked it and stayed. Please welcome to the stage, Greg Capito. The name of my piece is The Curious Visitor. Keep that adjective, curious, in mind as I relate this story. It was November 1970 and I was a short timer. Two more weeks and I was out of Vietnam. So I was shocked when the duty officer walked up to me and said, I need a man for a special detail outside the wire. Midnight, full combat gear, be there. I was in a state of shock. What? I go to the armor, Smitty, you remember all that stuff I turned in? I need it back, man, why? I don't know, something squirrely going on. I got a bad feeling. Well, midnight, I'm at the front gate, Jeep pulls up, duty officer says, throw your gear in the back, we're out of here. We drove about five kilometers outside the base to a small village, and at the edge of the village was a compound. It looked like an old French villa. Duty officer looked at me and said, this is straightforward, Sergeant. Provide security for this compound, I'll pick you up in the morning. And he roared away. I'm standing at the gate thinking, what on earth? I opened up the gate to the compound. It was a U-shaped facility, a bunch of pastel-colored buildings surrounded by a big brick wall. But everything was boarded up and closed, so I didn't know what I was guarding or why. Adjacent to the front gate was a bunker, but it was dark. So I tiptoed down into the bunker and felt my way around for a radio telephone. There was no radio telephone. I had no communications. Bad thing. Bad idea, bad vibe. I sat down on the bunker and thought, I'm just going to stay here, be quiet, morning will come, maybe no problems. As soon as I sat down on the sandbags, the heat enveloped me. It made my eyelids want to close. I was sweating because that bunker was like a sauna. First hard hat came off, then bandolier, then that heavy nine-pound flak jacket. I was exhausted, I was hot and miserable. There was an illuminated field in front of the bunker, about 100 meters. I thought, I'm just gonna focus on that field, but nobody's gonna be out there because there's a curfew. You don't violate a curfew at night, ever. For the thousandth time, I looked out at that illuminated field, and at the far end of it, I saw a man standing. I looked, what on earth is that? It's a young Vietnamese guy about my age complete with Ho Chi Minh sandals, the whole nine yards. My eyes focused on his hands, but they were in neutral position beside his body. No weapons were visible. 
but he had a curious look in his eye. And I thought, my imagination, this guy's got explosives on his back. He's a sapper. He's going to blow the place up. Or maybe, no, he's just there for reconnaissance, but then he's going to come back with friends. Or maybe, just maybe, he works in the compound during the day, and he's going to come back tonight and rip some materials off. The guy was walking directly towards the darkened bunker I was sitting in, and I thought, I can't let him get close. 50 meters is too close. But what am I going to do if he crosses the 50-meter line? Well, first thing I'll do is I'll yell, Dong Lai, Dong Lai! And if he doesn't stop, I'll fire a single round over his head. If he does anything aggressive, like attack the bunker, I'll take him out. So I slid around into the M16, very quietly, no metallic sound, flipped the selector switch forward, put my fingers on the safety, got a sight picture, center mass, chest, and I thought, what's the penalty for shooting an unarmed civilian? Good Lord. Now, the Brits in an earlier war would have called this a sticky wicket, and it was, because there were no good choices here. The guy kept walking forward, slowly, methodically, with that curious look in his eye. When he got to the 50-meter line, he stopped. And I swear, for 20 seconds, he looked right through the bunk darkened bunker into my eyes. And I thought, good Lord, what's going on here? Is this an aberration? What's going on? Then he turned, and he walked out of the illuminated perimeter and into the darkness. Then I really got scared. You could hear my heart beating. On came the flak jacket, bandolier, steel pot. I turned my ears on and I thought, this guy comes back with friends and outflanks this position, I'm toast. I was nervous, I was hot, I was worried. But the guy never came back. He vanished. The curious visitor walked away. I stood there for hours watching and listening, and finally on the horizon I saw this thin white line. It was daylight. It was dawn. Then I heard this magical sound. The jeep was coming back, second gear. I could hear it grinding. It was the duty officer coming back to pick me up. He roared up in a cloud of dust and said, throw your gear in the back. We're out of here. We roared back to the base. Halfway back to the base, he looks at me under his helmet and he says, Sergeant, I trust that your uh, detail was uneventful. I just grunted. I didn't want to talk about it. He accepted my grunt. We got back to the base. I cleared my weapon in the clearing barrel, turned all my gear back into the armor, tried to rack out. 11 o'clock the next morning, I awoke absolutely drenched in sweat. I slipped into my shower tongs, wrapped a towel around my waist, decided to walk to the shower room to see if we had any fresh water that day to rinse off this mess. I got halfway across the company compound and I hear this, Sergeant, Sergeant! I cringed, another stupid detail. Sergeant, you're gonna love me. It was our company clerk. Corporal, why am I gonna love you? Hey man, convoy's leaving for Cameron Bay tomorrow at noon and you're on it. Then you're going to Tonsonut. From Tonsonut, you're catching the freedom bird back to the world. What are you talking about? Your deer roast orders. I got them, man. I said, let me look at those. Holy smokes. So right there in the middle of the company compound, he and I did a little jig that went something like this. All my fingers and all my toes are going back to the world. Back to the world. <laughs> Hallelujah, I'm leaving this place. Wow. Oh, Sergeant, one more thing. Uh, what's that, Corporal? Don't forget your shot records. Shot records, oh, geez, yeah, got to get my shot records. Went back to my hooch, put everything in the duffel bag, 
Sure enough, three days later, I was at Fort Lewis, Washington at a transit center waiting for a flight home. Now, nearly 50 years have passed since that memorable night, but I still lie in bed wondering, and I want to share these thoughts. Who was that guy? <laughs> was he trying to hurt me? Did he survive the war? Did he go to school? Did he get married, raise kids? But the most intriguing question is this one. Who would I be as a person standing before you tonight if I'd taken the life of another human being whose only mistake was being curious? Thank you. Our next speaker did not write her intro. Her friends submitted it without her knowing. She knew she was speaking. Um, Amy Bro. Amy is a beautiful soul who invests energy in those around her. She's been bent by life's hiccups, but has not been broken. Every day she inspires love and light in those who call her friend. Amy, please join us. I had a fork in the road story, but I lost it. In November, I suffered a traumatic brain injury. Currently, my memory and speech are affected. I won't go into the details of the incident that led me to the life I now have, except to say that with one step, a fall on the ice, my life changed forever. With brain injury, you lose so much. It's really difficult to quantify all that is lost and may never be recovered. Those who have experienced it know exactly what I'm talking about. Brain injury is invisible, just like post-traumatic stress disorder, chronic fatigue syndrome, and addiction, just to name a few. You can't see the injury or the disease. The biggest loss with brain injury an anomaly, a loss of self. You become a stranger to yourself, a ghost in your own mind. The best way I know to explain it, it's like going to a foreign country and barely being able to speak the language. You can certainly get by, but it's definitely a challenge. And you know you really don't belong there. And yet, with brain injury, you know you will never be able to go home. It's as if you become a foreigner to yourself. It's as if Elvis has left the building and he is never coming back. It's okay to laugh. I laugh a lot more often now. When questioned, my friends say I'm pretty much still the same. I'm calmer and I cry more often. I actually did ask a dear friend to write my introduction for me because I can no longer identify myself to myself. I hope and pray that one day Elvis will, in fact, return to the building. It's so easy to speak of the road we've already traveled, yet so difficult to see the road ahead. 
It's as if I have a second life, not a do-over per se, a different life now. I've always been an extremely honest person. That did not and will not change. I'm going to be honest. I miss my life. When friends say I miss you, I think, I miss me too. And yes, of course, I miss them as well. My life, while nowhere near perfect, was pretty marvelous. I was genuinely happy and so full of energy. The gains. My friends are still my friends. And yes, I do remember who they are. Amazing, strong, unique, kind, loving, patient, inspirational individuals who, in weathering the storms of their own lives, are helping me to weather the worst storm of mine. They know who they are, and they know that I love them. My daughters, ages 19 and 14, incredible young women, funny, smart, talented. I could go on all night about them. I love them so, so much. They have been so supportive. They know the beat of my heart. They inspire me every day to continue. I'm truly blessed to be their mother. My job has never really felt like a job due to the person I work for and his family. I cannot speak enough kind words about them. They've been understanding and accommodating. And best of all, they pray for me. Before this, I knew the bright side of hurt was that with it comes healing. I mean, think about it. Healing only occurs when there's injury. Now, I hopefully get to experience a healing like I've never known before. A few odd gains. Food tastes way better. Water, I crave it. Drinking it, being in it, being on it, being near it. When I sleep, my dreams, astonishing, bizarre, surreal. I may write a book. <laughs> I've learned to be more patient with myself, which helps me to be more patient with others. I've learned that even though it's possible to go forward in life, I don't want to just go forward. I want to grow forward. I've learned that the darkest nights are indeed better to see the stars. From the refiner's fire, something beautiful will emerge. Don't know if you've ever heard the saying, you put crap in one hand and want in the other, and you see which one fills up faster? Wrong. You put hope in one hand, I say. You put faith in the other, and you see which one fills up faster. Thank you.
Our next speaker is Katrina Lee. Katrina has been singing publicly for six years and has been acting off and on for the last 30 years. This is her first time she's told one of her own stories to an audience. The things that she values the most are her family and friends being true to herself and others, kindness and love. Please welcome Katrina to the stage. It had been three months, three months of getting up every hour, every night, three months of giving countless doses of anti-anxiety and pain meds, breathing treatments, three months of the only relief in the day being the few hours I went to work or the store or the pharmacy, three months of putting on a brave face, like so many women in my family had done when faced with the hard edges of life. Three months of watching and knowing that our 12-year-old daughter had to give her father Haldol, which is an antipsychotic, while I was at work because the visiting nurses weren't allowed to. We were all in our own hell, hoping every single day that that would be the day, the day that it would end. We were all walking through the valley of the shadow of death, hoping that death would save us. And then he was in remission. <laughs> he stabilized. After 10 years of declining health, hundreds of doctor visits, multiple remissions, and months of hospice, he stabilized. We were now out of that valley, but when would we have to go through it all again? One of the hospice nurses, a short little southern spitfire, took me aside and said, Honey, there's just no telling how much longer he'll be with us. You did everything that was asked of you, and then some. For his sake, for your sake, for the sake of that beautiful little girl, think about putting him in long-term care. And that's when the fork in the road appeared. On the one hand, till death do you part, in sickness and in health, you take care of your own. I thought about my great-grandmother who would carry my great-grandfather every single day from the bed to the bathroom to his chair and back again because he didn't want anyone to see him in a wheelchair. On the other hand, I'd almost lost my job, almost lost the connection that I had with my daughter, least of all myself. So I made the choice. I cried. I hugged the Spitfire. I thanked her for telling me what I needed to hear. I went to him and I asked him if it would be okay to put him in long-term care. I told him I can't keep taking care of you and our daughter and going to work. 
He understood and agreed. I told our daughter, who was relieved. We both felt guilty, but knew that it was the right choice for our family. It's been four and a half years. He's still in long-term care and soldiering on. My 16-year-old and I just moved into a new home. We're making new memories, good memories. We don't have to be faced with those awful memories every single time we turn around in all the corners of our old home. The relationship we have is better than ever, and I am so thankful for that. If there's one thing that I learned from all of this, it's that you need to treasure every moment. Thank you. Our next speaker is Natalie Cosgrove. I also need to say that Natalie is um, a little bit of a hero. We had a last minute cancellation, so she's giving her story on three days notice. Um, <laughs> the child of a board member, I don't know if he pushed you down the stairs to make you do this, but <laughs> you'll see, she's on crutches. Natalie was born and raised in Juneau. She started performing at a very young age and loved every second of it. She knew what she wanted to do from the very beginning, or so she thought. Natalie, come on up. Hi, I'm Natalie Cosgrove. Yes, one of the board members, uh, kids. Um, I wrote this in two days, so sorry for the memory mishaps. Um, I'm 17 years old, as of two weeks ago, and I spent my birthday in bed recovering from surgery. And for a 17-year-old, I've come across many forks and many roads. Um, I've both literal and figurative. I've come across forks in the beautiful mountains hiking I, that I grew up just minutes from. I've come across forks in my self-expression and identity. And in eighth grade, I chose a path off a huge fork when I decided to move to California at 14 on my own to pursue career in performing arts. Uh, here I am, home from California. I'm in 11th grade now. I'm visiting my family here for the holidays. And just months ago, I found a very similar fork, a drastic one. The kind of fork that takes you off a mountainside cliff, bushwhacking through the forest, and looking back up at your friends on the well-paved road above and asking, wait, am I on the right road? Is this even a road? At the prestigious Idlewild Arts Academy, tucked away in the San Jacinto Mountains, just hours from the hustle and bustle of Hollywood, it's pretty unheard of to follow a career after graduation that doesn't relate to your major there at the academy. I mean, after four years of working 10 and a half hours a day, five to six days a week, starting over seems overwhelming and impossible. Sure, there's the music majors that major in music education rather than music performance, or the musical theater kids that choose just dance over the triple threat route. And of course, there's the kids whose parents disapprove of a career in the arts, so they choose something more suitable, like business management. But still, they sneak in a, in a minor in drawing, screenwriting, or oboe performance. When you leave home at 14, people refer to you as the kid who has life figured out. That is, to say the very least, definitely not true. 
Parents will come up to you and say, oh wow, I wish Susie knew what she wanted to do like you do. And friends will call you up and say, oh my gosh, I had college counseling today and I have no idea what I want to do. How did you know? Well, I was the kid who at four years old would force my parents' dinner guests to switch their attention from adult matters and watch me perform solo renditions of every sound of music song. And I was the kid who picked up the phone book of any big city we were traveling through and called every agency listed, asking if they'd sign me. Turns out most agencies don't want to work long distance with a kid from Alaska with no previous credits. In fifth grade, I told my parents, I'm getting on a plane when I, the day I turn 18. I'm flying to LA and I'm never looking back. I'm gonna be famous. My parents would always answer this proclamation with, that's great, honey, but how are you gonna graduate high school? I never really answered that one, but we've come to a compromise. I'm in California, but graduating high school, but I got to leave four years earlier. Being that kid comes with a lot of pressure. I hear things from, you're never going to make it, to, Remember us when you're famous. <laughs> Growing up hearing and thinking these things, there was no doubt in my mind that I was on the right path. I had my friends, family, and support systems from the academy all behind me, helping me to achieve my big dreams. But this past summer, between my sophomore and junior year at Idlewild, my world of belting high seas and tap dancing came to a crashing halt. After a really hard year at school of struggling with my mental and physical health, I came to the realization that these weren't my dreams. These aren't my dreams. And I was petrified with fear, because who am I if it wasn't for theater? But after three very long months staring at that fork in the road, I thought of contemplating my old kind of stale theater dream and discovering new possibilities. I found a new interest, medicine. Yeah, medicine. This is when the whole like bushwhacking and cliff thing comes into play because really, where did that come from? Who finds a passion for a career in medicine while studying at a performing arts school with a semi-okay STEM program? Well, crazily enough, I did and it hit me like a train. I no longer felt the struggle of going to rehearsals and theater classes because I no longer had to deal with the stress of theater as a career. Now, I'm studying art amongst crazy talented teenagers in a beautiful place because I love the process rather than pursuing the hopeful outcome of working eight shows a week on Broadway. I no longer have to reassure myself that, yes, Natalie, of course you'll be able to feed yourself after you graduate college with a BFA in musical theater while working a minimum wage job paying off student loans. Well, I turned away from professional theater and dove into the world of medicine, something I know significantly less about. On one hand, giving up theater was extremely painful for me. I felt like I was giving up, like I was letting down those supporters from grade school. I felt like I was washing away years of hard work and that the person I'd become during those years was going to. But on the other hand, I felt a magnificent weight lifted off my shoulders. I'd been walking down this well-paved road, naively guessing that there would be no bumps or forks in the road for approximately 10 years. Well, it turns out there were many bumps because sometimes I couldn't get my double pirouette and sometimes I wasn't casted in the role I wanted. And clearly there were many forks, small ones, pretty sizable ones, and this huge one. I was thousands of miles down that paved road and only a few steps down this new path I've turned onto. 
but if I've learned anything, it's that the more adventurous route is often more exciting than the well-paved road that you thought was happening. Thank you. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded January 9th, 2018 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Fork in the Road. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. On our website, you'll find audio archives of stories from our past six and a half seasons. A schedule of our upcoming events is also available. We're still looking for storytellers. For March, the theme is Wet and Wild. April, the theme is White Lies. And May, the theme is Road Trip. Remember, if you'd like to attend an event in person, all of our live events are on the second Tuesday night of each month through May. Thanks for listening. Our next speaker tonight is Jessica Bogard. Jessica uh, Bogard has been told she has too many Legos, shoes, books, and knives. Lies. She believes you can never have too many of any of those. She also believes you can never have too many board buddies, board game buddies, interested in playing sometime. Let her know. Please welcome to the stage, Jessica. So I'm Jessica Bogard, and my fork in the road was the moment I decided to become a people person. Yeah, not a full people person, like a three-quarter people person. You can round up on days when I feel like everyone's really interesting, and I can round down and read a book alone on the days that I decide it's a bad idea. Now, the, the fork in the road was because I had decided that being a professional hermit was a wonderful idea. I would read way too many books, according to my family. And my cousin, one summer, sophomore year of college, decided to put me on a 12-step anonymous program for being social. I recently texted her to see if I had successfully completed the program, and she informed me, no. I stalled about step 10. So it would be kind of two steps up, three steps back. I could read Harry Potter, but not in public. If people asked me a question, I had to follow up with a question about them, because apparently that's polite. (laughs) Rules. So what I also learned on this fork in the road when I decided to be a three-quarter people person was that I had always been the person people talked to which led, I think, to some of my not liking people. 
could get off the subway in foreign countries and have a wheelie bag with me, because sadly I was that person, for which I apologize. I now have a backpack, which I would then understand why you'd ask me how to get somewhere. But they asked with the wheelie bag. They also asked when I was in New York with a cousin who lived there. But they wouldn't talk to him. Oh, no, no. <laughs> they talked to me. I didn't like this. I, I really found this weird. But the fork in the road moment is when I decided I would accept this reality and make it work for me. Now, how it works for me is on the days when I decide that people are interesting, I don't mind everyone talking to me. But baby steps, right? So, for example, I have friends who don't believe me that everyone talks to me, and then they walk with me through the streets of Juno. For example, tonight, three people, a man dressed as a wolf, who shook his tail at me, a man smoking, who commented on the weather, pretty good, and another man who growled, not dressed like a wolf. <laughs> and my friends wanted to know what was in the air. That was the newer friend. The one who's been around for a while went, oh, we're with Jessica. You just accept it. Or if you're my cousin from New York, you decide which ball cap is the most offensive to whichever location we are in, and he wears it. He has decided that the New York Mets, no, the New York Yankees hat is basically a sign that you're an to the rest of the country. So that's what he rolls with when we're in San Francisco, Texas, Alabama, and anywhere else. Now, this only works in the continental United States because I went to school in a football town for grad school, which was Oklahoma, where you can actually yell boomer and everyone will yell sooner, unless they're from OSU and lost. <laughs> well, this just made it worse. And that's when I finally accepted it fully that it wasn't going to go away. So I have made it work for me in the fact that I now find people I think are interesting, walk up to them and declare that we're going to be friends. So far, it's worked. Every time. <laughs> but I also have moments where people still talk to me and I'm like, I really would be okay with still believing I could marry Neville Longbottom and retire as a professor at Hogwarts. Again, apparently not a thing. So if you see me out and about, know that I, I did pick the fork that led me to being okay with you all talking to me. And most of the time, I, I'm really okay with that happening. But I think like my introduction says, the fun thing about accepting the path was that I get to be interactive with everyone. And you get to have fun moments over board games or talking about knives, because again, it's me or having people dressed as wolves shake their tail at you. <laughs> you just roll with it. So, thank you. Our next speaker is Audrey Kohler. 
For Audrey, Juno has always been her home away from home, so she's excited to have the opportunity to call it simply her home now. She's also very excited to tell you how she got here. Audrey, please join me. Hello, friends and family and neighbors. Um, I am very, very excited to be here. Um, I'm also very, very excited for it to be 2018. A new year is always so wonderful and so welcomed by myself. One of my favorite things to do actually in the new year is to think back and say, oh, like this time last year, what was I doing? What was I thinking? What was I wanting? Um, did those things happen? And for me, playing that game this year has been quite, <laughs> quite the, uh, the experience. Uh, but before I get to that, we should um, do some self-reflection on even younger Audrey. Uh, I would describe myself as two things. One, an absolute hopeless romantic, still true, um, and also a very late bloomer. Um, I learned some very important lessons growing up through this um, struggle of mine. Uh, one I learned in middle school, which was to not cut my hair past my shoulders because it's curly, so it doesn't do the thing where it just kind of lays flat and is like the length you want it to be. It does the like shrubbery growing outwards, doesn't really stop the hand in the light socket thing. Um, Lady Gaga, triangle, um, she can rock it. I, <laughs> I learned that lesson. I cannot. Um, yeah, late bloomer. Uh, my first kiss was not until 15 in high school in a play. I went from kissing no boys to kissing two boys to kissing no boys, which was a whole nother experience. I'll say it for another time. Anyway, uh, you can imagine as a hopeless romantic slash late bloomer that when I woke up in my brand new apartment, thank you very much, at 18 years old, uh, starting my very first job, just graduated out of high school, uh, realizing that I had not yet been to a Halloween party and thinking that was something I absolutely had to do. Um, so th that fall, I was so determined and I like got this great Halloween costume and I wasn't just going to be Alice in Wonderland, I was going to be Mad Alice, which was basically just included wearing a top hat and like pretending I was Mad Hatter and Alice. Yeah, and there was a cute boy at the bookstore I was working at, and I asked him what he was doing on Halloween, um, and absolutely nothing happened with that. I had a very, um, very boring and lackluster Halloween that year. But the next year, <laughs> let me tell you, I was more determined than I had ever been before. And this time, it wasn't just me. I had my best friend, Lauren, on the train. We... <laughs> had both decided that this was the year we were gonna have at least one kind of memory, even if it was just us like watching scary movies at our house eating popcorn and throwing it at the TV, I don't know. Um, I bought a Snow White Halloween costume and she was gonna be uh, Sandy from Greece and we were set. I was so excited until I walked into work that morning and realized that I was on the schedule from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m., which is basically when Halloween is. <laughs> so um, I had no official plans up to that point, and I realized that I probably wasn't going to have anything happen anyway. Uh, but out of spite, I wore my costume to work because, gosh darn it, they were not going to take this away from me completely. Uh, I walk into the music department, which was absolutely dead. Uh, 
and took over my shift for my coworker who noticed my Snow White costume and said, um, oh, are you, are you going to a party after this? Is that why you're all dressed up? I was like, oh no, no, I'm just bitter. It's fine. Um, <laughs> they were like, oh. They're like, well, I'm having a Halloween party at my house and you're welcome to come to that after work if you want to. Really? Absolutely, yeah, no problem, here's my address. All right. It seems the tables had turned. After my shift, I ran home really fast, did my hair a little bit, went over to his house, took a deep breath, knocked on the door. It opened. I stepped inside. I did a sweep of the room, as one does in any romantic comedy. You've got to get a lay of the land. That's important. And that's when I saw them. The hot guy. There's always one in every romantic comedy. Um, and there he was, across the room. We made eye contact. I made sure. It was me. Um, but I played it cool. I played it cool. I didn't, I didn't go right over there. I did the only other thing that I um, know how to do, which is karaoke. <laughs> which was, uh, so yeah, I, I did that. And somehow, afterwards, I managed to still play it cool and like go over to the kitchen and pretend like I didn't know where he was. Um, and he came up to me. And he's like, oh, hey, so you do some karaoke? Yeah, I do. I do do some karaoke. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a very beautiful, beautiful 10-minute conversation, and then he had to go off into the night. His ride was taken off. I figured, well, that was a beautiful night. I have a memory. I did it. I made it. It happened. I don't have to worry anymore. Next day at work, my coworker comes up to me, and they're like, hey, I'm having a gathering at my house. Uh, you should come to that, which was weird. I had not been invited to any coworker's place aside from that previous night, but I was excited, new thing. So I say, I say, sure. I wind up going, and the hot guy is there again. Mysterious. Uh, we flirt a little bit at the party and all is well, but I head home, and he did not ask for my number. I was very, very sad until I get home, and my screen lights up, and he says, hey, it's the cute guy from the party. <laughs> I uh, got your number from your, your coworker. I hope that's okay. That's all right. Um, and he said, would you like to go to dinner with me? Absolutely. We wind up going to the ever-fabulous five-star restaurant Olive Garden. <laughs> and he picks me up. He brings me flowers. He's at 8 o'clock on the dot. He, like, opens the door for me to get in the car, and, like, the light shines on the flowers in the car. It's a beautiful moment. Um... And we start driving a small talk, you know, how, you know, where are you from, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I get to that question and say, oh, you know, where, where are you from? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm from this small town. Nobody really knows about it. And I was like, oh, no, like, what is it? I figure it's like, I don't know, New Jersey, some random place far away. He says, oh, I'm from this small town called Stanwood Camino Island. You need to pause. <laughs> That's what I tell him mid-drive down the I-5. Um, He's confused. I realize it was a little bit rude to just kind of interrupt him in the middle of a sentence. Uh, but I tell him, I'm sorry, I'm from Sandwood Camano Island. What school did you go to? Elder Bay, I went to Utsalati. What middle school did you go to? Sandwood Middle, I went to Port Susan. We literally grew up on opposite ends of the island our whole lives, going to opposite middle and elementary schools. And then all of a sudden it just started rolling out of us. Wait. Do you know Morgan Kramer? Yeah, I know Morgan Kramer. Wait, do you know Grace and Lean? Yeah, I do know Grace and Lean. We friend each other on Facebook and we have like 35 mutual friends. 
turns out he also, for the past year, had worked at the Party City, which was literally, I kid you not, two doors down from Barnes & Noble. He would come in every single day for lunch, and I would be stuck in the music department, just passing each other our whole lives. So yeah, things go well, and time passes. Two years in, we wind up getting a place together, and all goes well. Then, though, things start to change, not necessarily between us, not necessarily anybody's fault, but I notice that I am not doing the things that I love anymore. I'm not on stage very much. I'm working as a receptionist at a mortgage company, which for me is not a compatible choice. Uh, so this time, last year, the idea popped in my head, I think I need to go back to school. I think I need to finish my degree. I didn't know exactly where I was going to be able to make that happen, and as I crunched numbers and thought things through, I realized that Juneau, Alaska was really my best bet to finish my bachelor's degree. Um, I submitted my application and figured I would start there, see what happened. A few weeks later, I got the acceptance letter and realized I had to tell him that this was something I was going to do. That conversation did not go well, <laughs> as one can imagine. Uh, but we worked things through, and I, I just knew that it was something I had to do, no matter what, even if it meant losing him. And I did. I made the choice. And in May, I moved up here, and I started summer classes. And standing here now, Realizing that I have pretty much nothing back in Seattle where I spent 15 years of my life growing up. Everything in that past life is gone. But I can stand here and so clearly say that I have never been more happy or confident or proud in a decision that I have ever made in my life. And that's how I know that following my heart, even when... It was yelling and screaming and so confused why it was feeling what it was feeling. Um, if you ever find yourself at a fork in the road, listen to that voice. Because even if it's scary and weird and terrifying, it's going to find a way to work. And it's going to find a way to make sense. Yeah. Thank you. Our final speaker tonight is Laura Haywood. Laura was born in 1951. She grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, confident that she and the rest of the baby boomers would fix all the mistakes their parents had made. Her generation was supposed to lead all the people of the world to a peaceful and enlightened future in the age of Aquarius. I'm feeling it. Now she wonders how it all went wrong. Please welcome Laura to the stage. So in 1971, I was 20 years old, and I had to bail my boyfriend out of jail. It was nothing I ever thought I would do, but you know, it was a rough time then. 
most of you in the audience were alive then, and remember, we were at the height of the Vietnam War, but it wasn't just the war, it was the whole country was divided along racial lines and socioeconomic lines, and it was a tough time. But I felt confident that we, baby boomers, we were gonna fix it all, because there were so many of us. And it was the biggest generation there ever was, and our parents gave us everything we ever wanted. So we were full of confidence and vigor. We were gonna do it, and I wasn't sure how, so I needed some instruction. The first uh, instructions I got came from Timothy Leary. <laughs> and he had a three-point plan. <laughs> it was tune in, turn on, and drop out. <laughs> so the first two had to do with enlightenment, you know, looking inside, tuning in. Turning on had to do with psychedelic drugs. And I was really bad at both of those things, but dropping out, that was something I could do. <laughs> and I hated college, so I was really happy to drop out and, um, and have a, a really good reason to do it. It was a revolutionary act. <laughs> so I dropped out, I headed east, I had a friend um, in New Jersey and I went to stay there. And I sort of fell in with this group of freaks. Remember freaks? They all had crazy hair and beards. And, and I was sure that they were all kin, that we all had the same ideals, the same dreams. And uh, these particular freaks were seniors graduating from Princeton. They had all been accepted into medical school, and they were into scientific experimentation. I'll say that for them. And, they were a lot better at the tuning in and turning on part than I was. And then the other major philosopher that came along at that time was Abby Hoffman, who wrote a book called Steal This Book. You remember that? And you were encouraged to go into, say, Heartside Books and just take the book and stuff it down your pants or something and walk out. And it wasn't just books. It was everything. He told you how to, you know eat free in restaurants, how to, you know, pull up next to a fancy Cadillac and siphon all the gas out of the car, because the idea was we were sticking it to the man. We were, we were, you know, screwing the establishment, and so, you know, there was a good reason for doing that, too. They were also a lot better at that than I was, and I'd like to think it was my high moral ideals and ethical standards that made it very hard for me to shoplift, but it was actually just utter fear of facing my parents if I ever got busted. So anyway, I didn't do that, but as you might imagine, one of them did become my boyfriend, and upon graduation, what he wanted to do was go west, and he told me he really wanted to see the Cascade Mountains. So I said, I really wanted to see the Cascade Mountains. I didn't know where they were. I'd never heard of them, but <laughs> he didn't know that. So um, we had his grandmother's uh, Studebaker Lark. We had about $200 between us. And one thing we didn't have to worry about for him was the draft, because he had a high draft number. Um, you younger people, I'm sure you also know there was a draft. And if you got a high number, 
you probably weren't going to get drafted if you got a low number. You were probably going to Vietnam, which was, as we learned earlier tonight, a pretty dangerous place to be. But he got a high draft number, so he didn't have to worry about that. But with his, you know, socioeconomic status and all that, and his education, I bet he would have found a way out of it. But anyway, we took off. Our first stop was Chicago, because that's where my parents were. And, uh, you know, they really are amazing people. They really encouraged me to have an adventure. My father was a little worried about it. He took me aside and told me he just wanted to give me a little bit of security. So he handed me a $100 bill and told me to just stick it in my wallet. And that was my emergency money. And um, I took it gratefully. And that's the kind of parents I had. Anyway, we hit the road. We went west, camped the whole way. It was great. We get to um, uh, Seattle, and you know, we stayed there for a few days, and then we had to do some grocery shopping. So we went to this mega store, and we kind of went our separate ways, and he was looking for stuff, and I was looking for stuff, and I got my stuff, and then I couldn't find him. So I had to go up and down the aisles. I couldn't find him anywhere. But I, I kind of knew in my heart what had happened. And I knew there was a reason that $200 had lasted us for so long, and I knew he had been stealing the whole way. So I looked out in the parking lot, and sure enough, there was a bus going down, cop cars. and So I had to um, figure out where the police station was, and I had to go bail him out. It took me a while. I finally found the right desk. The cop behind the desk was pretty unpleasant, but he, he explained, I mean, it was obvious, he said, that I was no way going to be able to uh, bail him out. It was Friday night. He'd obviously be in jail all weekend because nobody would have $100 in cash in their wallet. And, you know, banks were closed. It was Friday night, and they didn't have cash machines back then. So, as you can imagine, it felt really good to <laughs> pull that um, $100 bill out and just put it down. So, anyway, got him out of jail. But, you know, something had changed, and um, we didn't break up that day or that month even, but you know, that was kind of it for us. And we ended up in Eugene, and I realized I could drop in to school about as easily as I had dropped out. <laughs> so that was good. I went to school. But ever since then, I, I think about it periodically and try to figure out really why, what went wrong? Why didn't we do the things we wanted to do? Why didn't we end war and poverty and racism and all that. And one thing I thought about was all my freaky friends in, in Princeton, they all had been accepted into medical school. None of them went. What if they had? Would our healthcare system be different? And I realized that I don't think that disengagement is a great way to change the world. And that is kind of what, I'm not saying all baby boomers were like that. It was just this particular group. You know, disengagement was what we did, and we thought we were sticking it to somebody, but we really weren't. And I kind of feel like apologizing to you lovely young people in the audience because we kind of stuck you with a mess. We were supposed to fix it, and we didn't do it. So now you have to, and you'll be around in 2030, 2050, 2070, 2100. You, you, have, you have to do it. And, what I'm going to say to you is that I have a lot of confidence in you. I think you're awesome. I saw a bunch of you that I know in the audience, and I know some of you are going to be really involved leaders, and 
and bring us to the next level. And I'm sorry we didn't do it, but I have faith in you. Thank you. Thank you for that. I love a good challenge. <laughs> Hopefully someone's gonna help me out too. <laughs> I think that the thing that's really powerful having taken the stage as someone that's on the storyboard and as a storyteller, most people that take the stage, it's pretty scary. You know, there's a lot of people that come religiously that will never take the stage, but the human connection that happens with people getting up here and telling personal stories is very amazing. And it happens on a monthly basis. But my, my challenge to you is to, to be like Jessica and ask a question back and have your own little mini mudrooms as you go about life between events. Um, because we really need to ask questions and stop and really listen to each other. And that's the way we're going to get to those better places where we don't label, dismiss, and ignore, but we really engage with one another, work together, and learn to appreciate one another. Have a great evening. Thanks for attending. Listening to KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on January 9th, 2018. The theme for the evening was Fork in the Road. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit us online at mudrooms.org. Audio production was by Rich Moniak. Additional help comes from storyboard members Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, Sarah Hannon, and Alita Buss. Music this month was by the Summit String Quartet. I'm Alita Bus. Have a great night. Thank you.